All right. So we're in the book of John, and I've, we've been talking about the fact that the beginning of the book starts out by talking about how Jesus is God tabernacling with us, that he is God dwelling with us. And so there is in the book of John an order that correlates to the order of the things that you would find in the tabernacle itself. And so this idea that there's this building of the tabernacle, or this, you know, the idea of the creation itself, but then also that Christ enters into the world, and so we have God with us. There is this beginning portion that focuses on entering into the presence of God. And then there's a section that focuses on Christ as the Lamb of God, which when you walk into the tabernacle, you would find that there is an altar for sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Not that that sacrifice could pay for your sins, but it's a symbol pointing to it. There would be a bronze laver of water. And so we find that there are ritualistic cleansings that are talked about in John 2. Remember the first sign there is given where you have Jesus at Cana in Galilee. He's at a wedding. And there are ceremonial water pots there and the water gets turned into wine. And so this points to that cleansing and we get into John 3 with the idea of the new birth and also the idea of washing there. And so the ceremonial cleansings are pointed to, nodded at in those texts. We get into John 4 and we start to deal with the idea of food and water for nourishment. And when you look at the tabernacle, what you find is that there's a table with shoe bread or the bread of the presence or show bread. This idea of it's out there to be a symbol for the presence of God with the people of God. And there are also chalices that there is a wine with. And so this idea of the the nourishing food and drink. And so the discussion that Jesus had in John 4 with the Samaritan woman had to do with him being the living water. And there's also then Jesus engaging with the idea of the change of covenant, that there was a temple in the old covenant, and that temple would be replaced with the reality of the church that goes international. So that there is a, a way in which the church is the temple of God, and that looks forward to that, and the going out of the word, and going out of the gospel to the world to bring the nations in. Then we see a foreshadowing of that, with the Samaritans, who were an apostate people, being brought in. Many of them believed Jesus. And so we find that there is, following that, Jesus returns to Cana, and he does another sign. He has the second sign, which is the healing of the royal official's son. And so we looked at that in comparison to example for the healing of the centurion's son, that this official asks Jesus to go with him to his house and to see that the, the son is healed. But Jesus just says, you know, he's well. And the guy returns and finds that his son has been healed and that he was healed at the very hour that Jesus said he would be well. So we look at the centurion, for example, the, the Gentile who was a believer, but who was a part of the Roman army. Um, we looked at that from other texts where he understood, he had a deeper faith, where he understood already that Jesus did not need to actually physically be present. But instead that Jesus could simply say the word and a person would be healed. And so we look at the difference of the depth of faith there. So now as we continue on in this section talking about the, the nourishing, healing, the, 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 the preserving power of God and his presence with us, we're looking at this discussion about the Sabbath 
And really this chunk of text is, is the whole of John chapter 5. Everything in this chapter is going to be uh, dealing with this. But we're first coming into this text, and so I'd like to help you to get a sense of it. So let's go to page 3 of the outline. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So which feast this is, is talked about in different ways. Generally what you find is people say, Calvin, for example, in his commentary says this is the feast of Pentecost. He says it's because the Passover that was just before it is referenced. Some people will uh, argue that this is Purim, and they try to make a connection to the idea that giving the gift of healing was sort of Jesus' Purim gift to this guy. Um, I, I don't think we can know from this text which feast it is, and uh, but if I were forced to choose, I think it makes sense that this would be an explanation as to why he's in Jerusalem, uh, but it's not necessary as an interpretation. So whether it's uh, the Feast of Pentecost that causes him to be in Jerusalem, or whether it's Purim and he's just there, even though Purim doesn't require you to go to Jerusalem, it's really irrelevant. The point is there is a feast that's going on and that there's also a Sabbath that's going on, and the Sabbath provides for us the more important part for the context. So verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porches. So, first, this text is in the present tense, that there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool. That indicates to you that at the time of the writing that there was this sheep gate, that there was this pool. Some people want to give to the book of John a very late date for the writing of it. But I'll tell you what, that gate and that pool were no longer there by 70 AD. So that means that John is either lying or he wrote this before 70 AD. So there is an internal evidence for the writing of this at an early date. And John, writing the word of God as an apostle, is not lying. So there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethsaida, having five porches. Now, verse 3. And these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. You read commentaries on this. A lot of the commentaries are kind of like, well, this wasn't actually the case. John is simply reporting here a superstition of the people that they believed that the stirring of the water was caused by an angel and that somebody would be healed. And, but when you read this, John is not saying this was the belief of the people. John is reporting that this is the case. Now, first of all, God used angels, especially in the Old Covenant, to carry messages. And we find that the angelic messengers are also used to point to the mercy of God in many cases. And the temple, being a place where this would occur, makes sense, especially in the Old Covenant period, where there's this gathering around of the work of God there to call people's attention to the work of God. But we find in the New Covenant that the angelic messengers and the ministry of the temple are displaced by the Messiah and the apostolic ministry. And we find that we see Jesus healing people, we see the apostles healing people, 
and we see that work of healing being shifted to be able to focus on the fact that Christ has come and there's a fulfillment of the types and shadows. And so Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 emphasizes, for example, the fact that there's a, a superiority of the ministry of Christ and his apostles to those who came before. And it contrasts Christ and the apostles with the patriarchs, the prophets, and angels. Okay, so let's look at this. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 4. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, and you could just as easily translate that in the last days, the idea being that it's the last days of the Old Covenant, spoke to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. Now, the worlds there, people often like to point to this as the idea of, of Christ as Creator. Christ certainly is the Creator. Right? And we, we find that in the beginning of John. But this text, when it talks about making the worlds, the Greek word is eons or aeons. And that is more easily understood as ages. And so the idea here is, think about this context. In the past, God spoke to us in various ways. In the last days, God spoke to us by His Son, who has, he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the ages. So, He's the Lord of these ages. He's the Lord of this giving of revelation. He's the Lord of the change of the outward order. And we find other texts, for example, Jesus says He's the Lord of the Sabbath. We find these assertions that Jesus is the one who is in authority over these things, and He's the one who the Father uses to bring to us the administration of the covenant and the change of it. Verse 3, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Okay, so there's a ton of stuff packed in here. But the superiority of Christ to angels and the change of administration are focal points here and the completion of revelation that we have Christ as this high point of the giving of words from God. And so the apostles are a continuation of his ministry. And when the apostles stopped, when the apostles laid down their pens, we have a completion of Scripture. Now, this text in John, we have the angelic work of healing a person. And we have Christ's work of healing a person. And so those things are being contrasted here. And in one case, this angelic work happens occasionally, unpredictably. And here is this man waiting for the blessing to come, waiting for healing. And he is unable. He is unable to get into the pool in time. Let's read about that. Verse 5. Go to page 4. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm coming, another steps down before me. Okay, so let's, let's think about this for a second. Here's a guy that's had an infirmity for 38 years. And he has been by this pool 
for 38 years, trying to find opportunity to receive healing from God. He is told that there is an angelic ministry to heal those beside this pool, that the sign that's given is the stirring of the water, and that the first one in at the stirring of the water will be healed. And for 38 years he has sat there. Now, in those 38 years, he has seen many stirrings of the water and seen many others go in. And he doesn't say nobody ever gets healed. What he says is, somebody else always goes in first. So for 38 years, he has hoped to be healed. And he has watched as others go in at the stirring of the water and are healed before him. For 38 years, praying there, waiting there, waiting for the mercy of God to bring him healing, and others are healed, but he is not. The locals would find him to be a fixture. Those who come to the temple would see him, and he would be almost like a pillar of stone that they would expect to see there, a part of the architecture, something that's this is what you expect to see. He could serve very well as a landmark. 38 years. Even those who are not locals to Jerusalem, when they come to the feasts three times a year, they come to the temple, they would see this man. So for 38 years, what does that add up to? It seems something like 114 times. And so these people from out of town, walking into the temple, seeing this man there, this man, the Lord planned for this man in his suffering, to be there to bring glory to the name of God and to be an attestation to the mercy ministry of Christ. Now, verse 8, Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. We don't know the extent of this man's infirmity, but it seems to be pretty bad that he feels as though he can't get in faster than other people who are infirm. I mean, think about this. You have blind people there, right? And these blind people would not be able to see the stirring of the water. So what are they doing? They're operating off of sound. You might have deaf people there that if they don't look at it, if they're not looking at the water, they wouldn't hear the stirring. So this guy is not deaf. He's, he's not blind. But... He, even though has, he has all of his senses, all of his ability to detect the stirring of the water, he doesn't get in first. So he must be significantly diminished in his mobility that he cannot get in in time. Jesus tells him to rise, take up the bed, and walk. We know in other places that Jesus heals paralytics. And their response, they, they have their nerve damage healed, their musculature is made immediately sufficiently strong that they can move, and they don't have to redevelop their motor skill through months of physical therapy. The Lord Jesus Christ simply causes them to have the strength and ability to walk. And we see the same sort of thing here. This guy immediately has sufficient strength to get up and walk and the motor skill to do it, and he takes his bed and he goes. Immediately the man is made well. He took up his bed and walked. Now, page 5. And that day was the Sabbath day. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now, these guys probably, probably had seen this guy a lot. They're rebuking him. And so they 
are likely to have recognized him as the guy who was infirm and incapable of walking. Maybe not. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe they didn't recognize him. Didn't recognize you without you lying on your bed. You had your bed, but you're not lying on it. So I didn't recognize you. And at the same time, they immediately go into this rebuke about the carrying, rather than, wait a second, why are you, why are you able to move? So maybe they don't recognize him. Verse 11, he answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. So he's reminding them, Yeah, you remember when I was incapable of moving before and I was infirm by the pool? Somebody healed me, and the guy who healed me is the guy that told me to pick up my bed and walk. So this is a, an appeal to a sign of a prophet. Now, do signs of prophets infallibly show that a man is a prophet? No. So, the response of these Jews is, then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Notice they don't say, who is the man who healed you? Their focus is still on prosecuting this man and prosecuting the person who told him to get up, walk, and carry the bed. But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. So Jesus heals this man. There's a bunch of people around. And Jesus' response often in the face of crowds is to get out of them. And so he does this sign in a way that would draw notice to the work, but then doesn't even really make it so that people are certain who it is. Now, many people there may have known him already. He'd been doing his public ministry for some time. He'd already done signs there. So other people might have recognized him. But this man, at least, did not know. So let's think for a second about this desire to prosecute Jesus. The law of God, point 16, the law of God forbids work on the Sabbath except as the work relates to work that is necessary to avoid breaking another commandment. We call those works of necessity. Work that is for the merciful purpose of helping another in distress. We call those works of mercy. Or work that is the holy work of the Sabbath associated with the assembly of the saints and the worship of God. Okay, so work for the church functionality and work for the worship itself. Unnecessary work on the Sabbath has criminal penalties for breaking this commandment. The Jews accuse the man that was healed of breaking the Sabbath when they see him carrying his bed. And the Jews add human tradition to the original command and make things unlawful that would have previously been lawful and they eliminate the categories of necessity and mercy and only leave room partially for the work of worship and the assembly of the saints. So what we find in the New Testament, when Jesus has confrontations with Jews about the Sabbath, overwhelmingly he is doing some work of necessity, like we'll have the example of the apostles picking grain for their immediate consumption. Not picking grain to store it up, not picking grain for tomorrow's meal, picking grain for their immediate consumption, or we find things like him healing people. And the Jews prosecute him and say he is in the wrong, and they seek to persecute him, and they press on the point that he is breaking the Sabbath. And when he argues with them, it typically results in them finding something else to be mad at him about. 
there is a constant escalating of the conflict when he gets into these fights about the Sabbath. But over and over again, we see these categories of works of necessity and works of mercy being emphasized. And the way this gets read, oftentimes, is people read this and they say, see, Jesus was saying that the Sabbath wasn't binding, or Jesus was saying that the Sabbath wasn't necessary, or that there was a silly concern about you know, trying to apply the Sabbath in detail, or anything like that. These are the kinds of things that you find in readings of these texts oftentimes. But that is not the point that the Lord Jesus Christ is making. The point he is making is that the Sabbath ought to be kept, it ought to be cared for seriously. And he kept it perfectly. But what he's saying is, that we ought not to add human traditions or restrict the things that God commands or to add human doctrines to the doctrine of the Sabbath. And so what Jesus does is he does not abolish the Sabbath. He doesn't destroy it. He doesn't end it. He isn't saying it was never binding. What he's saying is you have misunderstood the commandment that was given by God and repeated by Moses. Now, this healed man doesn't have a particularly fantastic argument for why it's lawful. His response is not to say, well, actually, carrying my bed was a work of necessity because, you see, I was lying on it by the pool. An act of mercy was done to me. And then, in order to care for the property and to avoid leaving something out that could be stolen or destroyed, I picked it up to take it back with me to my house so that I might prepare to go to public worship. That's not his response. His response was, but the guy who healed me said, that is the response. So now the question is, what is the justification of that man? And so, just because somebody does something that's particularly amazing doesn't mean that you should do whatever they tell you. When somebody who does particularly amazing things then tells you something you think violates the law of God, might that be a test for you? You think well of a person? You think they've done lots of neat things? They're impressive in lots of ways. And they tell you to do something, and it violates the law of God. Should you obey them? You should not. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, whether it's traditions or whether it's great men. So the healed man appeals to the command of the one that healed him. And the implication is that the man seems to be a prophet and thus seems to be a reliable interpreter of the law. But empirical signs must be tested for coherence with the word of God already given. We see this in Deuteronomy 13. If somebody, if a prophet comes to you and says to you, let's go worship other gods, you're supposed to reject them as a false prophet because they're telling you to do something contrary to what the earlier revelation said. Deuteronomy 18 tells you if somebody makes a prophecy about what's going to happen and then it doesn't come to pass, they're a false prophet. These are the two major tests you need to know for false prophets. And so the response of these Jews seems to be, well, even though Jesus healed you, he's a false prophet because he's rejecting the tradition of the elders about the Sabbath. So they are ignoring the proper exceptions. Verse 14, Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, that you, see you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So Jesus reveals who he is. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that healed you. And he's also asserting you need to care about the law of God. Because he says sin no more. And you know, how do you know what sin is apart from the law of God? Romans 3, 20, the second part of that verse says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. The only way you can know what sin is is by the law of God. So Jesus is affirming the law of God. He's not denying it. 
And in fact, he says, if you break the law of God, there's a possibility that God will bring curse on you in this life that's worse than what you've gone through before. God uses suffering to test us. And if we go through it in faith, he brings blessing. He also uses suffering to chastise. Now, from the outside observer, you can't tell what's going on. In fact, you yourself might not know what's going on. Sometimes it's particularly obvious. I did this sin, and this result happened that's very clearly connected. For example, you drink too much, you get drunk. That drunkenness might not be very pleasant, and you might, like what Proverbs says, you might be falling over and having wounds that you can't identify where they came from or whatever. Those are curses that are directly associated with drunkenness. Now, there are other times when there's something that seems disconnected that might befall you and come from the hand of God to bring suffering into your life to cause discipline to occur. There's an important difference between discipline and punishment. Remember this. Punishment is penalty for sin. Jesus took all of our punishment. Discipline is about teaching. Sending people to everlasting torment in hell is not discipline. The goal is not to teach them there or reform them. It is punishment. Suffering in this life can be used for discipline to cause you to stop and think and to repent. Page 6. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, I don't know if this guy is trying to save his own neck. I don't know if this guy is trying to tell them about Jesus and say, I know who healed me now, and you should believe in him too. And you should stop caring about this. Or if this is, hey, don't, don't harm me, go after this guy, you know, don't pay attention to me. I don't know which it is. We are generally called to give a charitable interpretation when we read the scriptures and we're not told that something is bad. So let's assume this guy is saying, hey, you should believe in this guy too. But the result is this, verse 16. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he did not only he not only broke the sabbath but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God now is John asserting that Jesus actually broke the sabbath he is not he is saying these people persecuted him because they thought he broke the sabbath and also that they thought that it was blasphemous to assert that he was equal with the father we know Jesus did not break the Sabbath, and he is accurately teaching what should occur on the Sabbath. And we know that he accurately taught that he is equal with the Father. And it's funny, sometimes the enemies of Jesus understand far better than his own followers what it is that he is saying. You'll find other passages where this exact issue, where Jesus is walking around and he says, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm equal with the Father. And his disciples are kind of just, you know, doing something, I don't know, hanging out, whatever. And the, the Pharisees get furious because they say, you just made yourself equal with God. And the disciples are like, wait, what? What happened? What's going on? And so being woken up by this, the fight, the enemies of the church listen sometimes very carefully to what the church has to say. And it draws us out of our slumber as the fights about truth go on around us. If we were more diligent and paid more attention to the truth, then we would be more ready to engage in those fights more effectively. But what often happens is, the shepherds are stuck fighting by themselves while the sheep 
try to figure out whether or not they should get in battle array. It is your duty to carefully listen to the teaching that comes from the scriptures so you can be ready to fight when issues arise and not wait for the fight to be half over before you get your armor on. The enemy pays very careful attention looking for any stumbling that they can find in the church or any point of attack where they can take something that would be unpopular and use it against the church in the broader culture. And so often, it is people who claim to be believers that side with the world, arguing against those people that are brave enough to assert the truth, that makes it so that those people are shouted down. Now notice we've had a shift. The focus was on the Sabbath, and now all of a sudden it's on blasphemy. And so one thing is not resolved, and they move to the next one. If you're having a discussion, for example, and somebody says, I did this for reason A, and you immediately go to attack reason A, as opposed to saying, well, if reason A were true, would it justify the thing we're talking about? What we do is we just add on to the fight. Okay, so when you're arguing with somebody, and somebody says, you, know, you, you go to them and you say, hey, you did this thing and it looked like sin. I think you should repent. And they say, well, the reason I did that thing is for the following reasons. And those reasons would justify doing the action that you're worried about. If you immediately go to argue about the things the person claims, and you never admit, yeah, if that were true, then it would justify the action, you're just increasing strife. Okay, so that tendency to just kind of move on and never acknowledge the previous point or acknowledge whether that previous point would resolve the issue is something that makes strife greater. So this moving, they never say, if this were true, that you are sent by the Father and that you are the Son of the Father and what you're claiming about the Sabbath in terms of types of work, if these things are true then yes, you would be doing righteousness. They just move to the next objection. Now, verse 17, let's think about this for a second. You might not have understood the answer that Jesus gives. So what's the basic problem? The basic problem is the Sabbath forbids work. The carrying of a bed was viewed as work. And the question is, has Jesus ordered this guy to do work illegally on the Sabbath? And Jesus' response is, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Okay, what is this referring to? Where does the Sabbath come from? The Sabbath comes from, back in Genesis 2, God creates for six days, and he rests on the seventh day. Resting on the seventh day. When he rests on the seventh day, does he stop doing everything? Does he stop all of his work altogether and never do any more work? The Lord Jesus Christ is saying, no. He continues to do work. So what is the difference? Well, there's some sort of work he stopped from, and there's some sort of work he's continuing. What is the difference between these works? The first one is creation from nothing. And the other one is governing the things he's made. So we have creation and providence. And he's distinguishing between these two types of work. And Jesus is saying, 
My father has been working until now, and I have been working. So what he's saying is, your concern is that this is work. You're right. Carrying the bed is work. And yes, healing this guy was work. But not all work is forbidden on the Sabbath. And that can be demonstrated from the fact that God, when he rested, continued to work. Not doing the same kind of work, doing a different kind of work. And so, the resting of God, (coughs) which is given to us in the origin of the Sabbath, and how the Sabbath is to work, is what Jesus appeals to. They miss that point, or they move on from that point, and go, wait a second, you think you're equal to God the Father. We should not miss that point. Now, they try to kill him all the more, because now they've got two reasons. Alright, so we've gone through the text. This is what the text is about. Understand the text. Let's talk about the doctrine. Go to page 7. The Bible gives to us a Sabbath at creation. There are things that are taught to us about Sabbath in the Old Testament, and there are things that are taught to us about the Sabbath in the New Testament. So I want to read to you the big question at the top there. Why did the Jews want to persecute Jesus for healing a man and telling him to carry his bed on the Sabbath? Okay, here's the creation ordinance. Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3 example of God. Exodus 16 gives you an example of the Sabbath being kept before God gave the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 is the Fourth Commandment being given in the Ten Commandments. Then, Exodus 31 and Exodus 35, which goes on to page 8, that shows you that God commanded that a person who was working on the Sabbath, which is the most flagrant type of breaking of the Sabbath. You can break the Sabbath by not paying attention to the worship as it's going on. You can break the Sabbath by you know, just kind of sitting around and being idle. But the most extreme version of breaking the Sabbath that is most likely to draw other people in to follow the example is doing work on the Sabbath that's not necessary. It's not a work of mercy. And you're not worshiping God or doing the work necessary for the church. You're just going and trying to make money. You're just selling grain at the gates. You're just keeping Best Buy open. right? This kind of stuff where we just go and... I should have said Blockbuster, and you go, what is Blockbuster? Anyway, so so that, that idea, the problem of just working to try to make money is the thing that makes it so that there's this tendency to have the worst sort of Sabbath breaking, the failure to keep it holy from other days. And so we have the example of getting sticks on the Sabbath. You didn't collect sticks the day before to burn for your fire? This idea of kindling fire gets brought up. And you go, what, what's the deal with that? Is the idea that you shouldn't have a fire at all on the Sabbath? No. The idea is you prepare a, Sab- you prepare a fire for the Sabbath that makes it so that you don't have to, to keep warm or whatever. You make it so that you've done the work to prepare. The remembering of the Sabbath to prepare to be able to rest on the day. And here's another thing that's interesting about the Sabbath. If you need something, rather than going and doing work for it or buying it, it's an opportunity for other people to show the communion of the saints and to bless you by giving you things. So if you need something, go ask your neighbor. Go ask your brother. Ask a brother at church who also is desirous to keep the Lord's Day to help you with the thing you don't have. And it becomes an opportunity for caring for each other, for hospitality, for blessing each other. It builds up the community of the saints as opposed to, I'm just going to go buy this thing. I'm just going to go work for this thing on the Lord's Day. So these commandments, these principles that are given, There's an example of how this is to be applied in Numbers 15. 
We had a guy who was gathering sticks. He's punished. So we have the law. We have the application of the law. And then we're also told if the community fails to keep this commandment, if the community does not do what it ought to do, what we find is there's curse that comes in the community. Second Chronicles, the very end of the book, ends with this. It talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple that came in 587 B.C. And it says in verse 21, Chronicles 36, verse 21, that this happened to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So God didn't get some of his Sabbaths, and he goes, all right, I will destroy you, and then the empty land will give me rest. There will be rest there because of desolation. And so these are the reasons why these people would be very concerned. They have a legitimate reason to care about the Sabbath. That is not the point to mock them at. The point to mock them at is not understanding the rule of necessity and mercy and not understanding that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. So the next thing, the bottom of page 8. The Jews were wrong in their interpretation of the Sabbath. Jesus did not abolish the Sabbath. He kept the Sabbath perfectly and showed how the Jews were wrongly applying the Sabbath laws. First, we know that the Sabbath is a part of the moral law. I mean, it's in the Ten Commandments. It's a creation ordinance. It's in Exodus 16, before the giving of the Mosaic Covenant. And what we have is, over and over again, promises and examples related to it. And we find, for example, that the Sabbath is prophesied about as it relates to the New Testament. And the Lord Jesus Christ has the authority to change the day. So it's not some random thing that happens. It says, for example, in Mark 1, verse 28, The Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. In other words, he has authority over the Sabbath. So Jesus doesn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. So go to the bottom of page 9. Jesus did not end the Sabbath. Rather, he transforms the Sabbath from a day recalling creation to a day recalling his resurrection as the first fruits of the new creation. And that new creation was purchased at the cross And it's being applied progressively in time. And it will be consummate at the glorious return of Christ. So I've provided for you some key verses here. In past times, I've given you longer explanations of this. But here are some of the key verses related to the argument for what I just read. Deuteronomy chapter 5 gives to us a change of reason for Sabbath. At creation, God rests, and that's the reason for Sabbath. Exodus 20 tells us that. Deuteronomy 5 says, hey, you know, the reason you have a Sabbath is because you used to be slaves in Egypt and I redeemed you out of that. And so the Sabbath is to recall your redemption out of slavery. Well, the Lord's Day on the first day of the week is to recall our redemption out of slavery to sin. It's a change of the Sabbath. It's a change of reason. Now, that's, pro- that's pointed forward to there, even though the Sabbath originally was about creation. And so that gives us a hint that there'll be a new Christian Sabbath based upon this recreation. Point 33. The appointed day for the Sabbath is connected to the resurrection day of Christ. And we're told that in Psalm 118. It says, this is the day the Lord has appointed. It's often quoted this way. This is the day the Lord has made. And the way you see it on plaques in houses is, this is the day the Lord has made. It's really sunny out, shine. Let's go play and be happy. That is not the point. That is not the point. It is, this is the day the Lord has appointed. Which day is that? The Lord's day. The Sabbath. And it's the day of the resurrection. And that is talked about and interpreted in Acts 4. 
the Apostle Peter quotes from Psalm 118 and interprets the appointed day as the day of the resurrection. So we know that's what it means because we have an infallible interpreter, the Apostle Peter, in Scripture telling us what it means. We also have prophecy about the day of the Lord or the Lord's day as a Christian Sabbath. Isaiah 58 talks about the Sabbath and calls it the day of the Lord, which is just Lord's day. It's just a possessive form. You're just saying this is the day that God owns, a special way. And Matthew 24, verse 20, Jesus prophesies that the temple is going to be destroyed in 70 AD. And he says, pray that it's not in the winter and pray that it's not on the Sabbath. Why do Christians care if it's on the Sabbath unless Christians have a Sabbath? So Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He can change the day. That's a change of the ceremony. The moral law requires that one day out of seven be used as a Sabbath. Jesus acknowledges a Sabbath that Christians should care about after His death in Matthew 24, verse 20. And the Lord's Day is prophesied about in Isaiah and Revelation 1.10 talks about the Lord's Day. And so, go to page 10. Here is a key text that shows you about a change of Sabbaths. It's Matthew 28, verse 1. And here's how it's normally translated. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, it's talking about the day of the resurrection. Okay, But notice what I put in brackets there for you. Okay? Now after the Sabbaton, as the first of the Sabbaton began to dawn. That's what the Greek has. Now Sabbaton is plural. And so you can translate it as Sabbaths. Sometimes you can find it used to refer to weeks because a Sabbath is a figure of speech, is ahead of a week. And so you can refer to weeks. Okay, but here's what I would suggest is a better translation. At the end of the Sabbaths, as it began to dawn toward the first of the Sabbaths. The day of the resurrection was after the last Old Covenant Sabbath, which was a, a Saturday, and it was on the first New Covenant Sabbath, Sunday, the Lord's Day. At the end of the Jewish Sabbath, it began to dawn toward the first of the Christian Sabbaths. That's how you would understand that. Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. He changes the ceremonial aspect to better serve man in the New Covenant era. This change of day keeps the moral precept of 1 and 7 to be kept holy, but it changes the outward ceremony, which day it is. Now, I'm running out of time here, and so what I would like to do is to encourage you for your own application, for you to read the section of the larger catechism about the Sabbath. And I'd like to encourage you to also read the chapter from the Westminster Confession of Faith that talks about the regulated principle of worship and the Sabbath day. I tried to highlight some key portions there and underline those. But if you meditate upon those and look for the application, the key thing I want you to take away is this. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So we don't want to come in and have a wooden application of Sabbath laws where we do things that make it so the Sabbath is not helpful for its goal. What's the goal of the Sabbath? The Sabbath is a day to rest from ordinary work and recreation for the goal of increasing the knowledge of God by allowing us to worship God 
and that we might feast on the word. And so the prohibitions of the Sabbath, like carrying a load of sticks or doing work, are not meant to make it so that you have the inability to do necessary work that arises. It is a statement that you need to avoid work that would take you away from learning about God. And so that means you prepare a meal so that you can eat and not be distracted by hunger. That means that you, you know, do things like, oh, I left my Bible at the church. I guess I have to drive back and pick it up so I can use it for the Sabbath. And then you drive back. You don't go, I'm not going to travel to avoid, you know, breaking the Sabbath. And instead, I'm going to sit around here and I don't have anything to read, but I'm going to keep the Sabbath, right? That kind of silliness. No, you do the stuff that helps you to actually use the day as a feast day of the word. So, the day is for worship. The day is for the work of the church. Necessary work is stuff where you, if you failed to do it, you'd be sinning or you'd be failing to perform some ordinary duty. And works of mercy are helping people who are in present distress. So these are the things that we spend the Sabbath on. Feasting on the Lord's Word. Doing the work of caring for the church. Mercy and necessity. I stand open to comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.